Our Old Covenant reading this evening comes from the prophet Nahum. Nahum chapter 3. I will be finishing up Nahum this evening, uh, looking at verses 14 to 19. This is the word of God. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts. Settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Our New Covenant reading this evening comes from Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 1, we'll read the first five verses. Revelation 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, great and small. The grass withers and the flowers of the field, they fade and they fall, but this, the word of our God, Nahum chapter 3 and Revelation 19, it endures forever. Let's pray together. Our great and our glorious God, we come this evening eager and needful to hear your holy word. Your word that you put down as you led your prophets along. Your word that you breathed out that we, your people, in this age would have the very word of God. We know, Lord, that we are dull, that we are hard of hearing. Lord, that we are slow to heed. Lord, that we have difficulty seeing. So we ask, dear Father, that you would send your spirit 
to illumine our hearts, to shine light on your word, and that that word, Lord, would be impressed upon our hearts according to your good grace that we receive in our Lord Jesus. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'd ask that you turn back to Nahum chapter 3 as we uh, finish up uh, looking through this prophet. In Psalm 73, which is a psalm that I very much like, David says that he was bitter towards the Lord as he looked envious upon the wicked and their prosperity and the ease of their lives. He looked upon the wicked. He looked upon those who hated God and he saw their power and he saw their endless pleasures with seemingly no consequences. Meanwhile, the righteous, those who seek to trust the Lord, were faced with troubles and various sorrows. Why? David asks. Maybe that's a question that you've asked before. Yet what we see in Psalm 73 is that when David went to the sanctuary of the Lord, his perspective changed. In light of the glory and majesty of the Lord, he came to rightly see just how feeble and how futile the wicked truly are. He says of those who set themselves against the Lord in Psalm 73 verses 18 and 19, Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. The final verses here in Nahum's prophecy leave us with a portrait of the final collapse of the enemies of God. The final collapse of Nineveh, that great enemy of the Lord and that great enemy of the Lord's people, Judah. And they come Nothing. The Lord through the prophets shines a light on what's really going on here in these verses. Really showing us just how futile and how fragile Nineveh really is. Despite all of their monstrous strength, when the hand of the Lord's judgment comes upon them, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. In the collapse that will come upon Nineveh, we see here four things. First, the futility of working against the Lord. Second, the breakdown of man's economic order. Third, the duplicity of man's civil order. And fourth and finally, the happy end. Verse 14, if you look there in your Bibles, begins with the description of the fall and final collapse of Nineveh with a series of five ironic imperatives addressed to the citizens of the city. Similar to the imperatives that we find in chapter 2, verse 1, these commands instruct the people really to act in accord with their natural corrupt inclinations to put all of their efforts 
into avoiding the inescapable judgment of God. Draw water for the siege, Nahum says, whereas the people of God are led by streams of quiet waters. The people of Nineveh are called to approach the water with drudgery. Since Nineveh didn't have an endless supply of water within the city gates, the people would need to store it up. They'd need to put it somewhere. And that limited supply would need to be rationed over time as the city was being sieged. Drawing water would be a matter of life and death. Nam goes on, strengthen the forts. These fortifications are what Nineveh relied on to protect them. That's how they felt safe. When danger is on the horizon, their drive is to pour all of their resources into making sure that the walls and the towers are strong and that they'll hold fast against whoever comes against them. So that any cracks would need to be filled. Any weak spots would need to be further supported. Go into clay, Nahum says. Or immerse yourselves in the clay. It is a way of describing really the total absorption of this fort strengthening effort that Nahum's telling the Ninevites to try. Really, Nahum is, is mocking Nineveh for its efforts to keep its city standing because even with a singular fixed focus, they stand absolutely no chance against Almighty God. And so tread the mortar, that mortar that's going to be used on the walls of the fortress to hold things together that requires immense physical exertion. Ensure, Ninevites, that it's mixed well so it sets strong so your walls won't fail. Hold the brick mold. If the bricks are to retain their form, the mold would need to be held firm so as to compress the shape of the bricks so that they they would be able to provide the strength that's needed to hold up those walls so that they would be strong. Now this powerful and carefree city doesn't seem so carefree after all, does it? Remember the people of Israel when they were in bondage? What were they in bondage doing? What did the Egyptians have them doing? They were confined to forced labor making bricks. We should see a connection here. As as Israel's in bondage making bricks, the very fact that they're making bricks shows they're in bondage. Right? The brick making was a bondage for Israel. And really the brick making bondage for the people of Nineveh. They're in bondage as they seek to keep their city from falling. They immerse themselves in the work. They devote themselves to the work. They spend all their strength on the work. It's important here that we distinguish between work, which is good, right? Not all work is futile. There's good work to be done, good work to be done that's proper to the responsibility and calling of human beings. God created us that we would be workers. 
Right? Work in and of itself is not futility. Man was made to work. And in redemption by Jesus, we are remade by Christ for good works. But the point in these verses is that a particular type of work is futile. That is working against the Lord and more specifically working against the Lord's judgment. Right? People can work for their own glory and their own self-interest or they can work and do for the glory of God and the love of God. Right? That's what distinguishes the city of man from the city of God. Augustine makes the point in his book, The City of God, when he says, And certainly this is the great difference which distinguishes the two cities of which we speak. The one being the society of the godly men, the other of the ungodly. The one guided and fashioned by love of self, the other by love of God. And what we find in Nineveh, is the epitome of a city of self-love and self-glory. And as they put their hands to the plow, so to speak, to work with all of their might to stave off God's judgment and to protect their city at the very pinnacle of all of their efforts, at the height of everything that they could possibly do, when man has put all of his strength into what he is doing, look at verse 15. There will I devour, will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. There, when all their efforts are directed and focused, there will all their works be burned and turned to rubble. Which is exactly what happened to Nineveh. That's what the Babylonian and Greek sources confirm to us. That Nineveh was indeed burned. There they will be cut down at the height of their efforts. Now this is of course not just applicable to Nineveh as if they are some aberration in world history. We learn something from this. The Lord is not impressed with the kingdom building work of those who do not work for him. All the kingdoms of this earth can, can do and fashion whatever they want. The Lord is not impressed. Because at root it is striving against the Lord. Which is as futile as Ecclesiastes tells us is striving after the wind. It, it accomplishes nothing. And secures only God's displeasure and judgment. I think of the man who who sells his soul to his company in order to gain the whole world of wealth that he hopes will grant him happiness and longevity in this life. In the end, he has nothing. Think of the one who is so completely absorbed with the uh, entertaining entrapments of this world to ne the neglect of the need of the forgiveness of her sins. Something that seems so unnecessary. Neglect of the need of forgiveness. The need of reconciliation with her God. All the work that she's done in this world amounts to nothing. 
and it's swallowed up by fire. Naaman introduces an image here that he'll use throughout until verse 17. And the image is going to change form and function in his illustrations. And it's this image of, of locusts. He, he applies it to Nineveh as acting like locusts. And he applies it to, to the enemies coming upon them as locusts. And he applies it to the merchants as locusts. And he applies it to their captains and their princes as locusts. These small, unassuming creatures that when the winds change, turn into an army that devours everything and anything in its path. As O. Palmer Robertson observes, the most obscure and seemingly defenseless of God's creatures brings to their knees the most powerful of God's adversaries. There in this city, the emblem of Assyria's greatest achievement, they will be devoured like the locust that comes and devours everything in its path. Even as Nineveh itself is told to multiply themselves, to gather as many people as they can, the numbers won't help. The Lord's not impressed with the sizes of crowds either. It doesn't matter how many people there are working together, oriented in the same godless direction. Just think of Babel, right? For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. Matthew 7.13 It doesn't matter that all the world walks contrary to Christ and his kingdom. That doesn't change God's law. That doesn't alter God's plans. God doesn't take human opinions into consideration when he's executing his decrees. So rather than gleaning from their tireless labor, the Ninevites will be the ones who are devoured. All the work, all the effort of sinners is futile because it's working against Almighty God. Secondly, we see that Nineveh's self-love, that is the ethic and ethos of her society has deep self-inflicted fractures. There's internal weaknesses in Nineveh inherent into, in, in, in a sinful society. There's weaknesses that will exacerbate her, her agony. See, not only did she trust in the might of her work, she also put her trust in her wealth. So we see the breakdown of man's economic order in Nineveh. Because Nineveh grew large, not only in terms of population, but also in terms of economic opportunity, which was one of the main draws for people coming to Nineveh. There's money there. There's opportunity there. We mustn't underestimate the value of economic stability and growth. Nineveh had become exceedingly rich. Now much of that had come through plunder of her enemies. But with the influx of resources also came the increase of of opportunity. So merchants with goods to sell flocked to Nineveh. And the people of Nineveh were able and willingly paid 
for goods from around the world. And that thriving marketplace was a source of pride for the Ninevites. It became a hub of commerce in the region that stood at the crossroads of three continents. So that in Nineveh you could find the best and the most luxurious of goods from around the world. The fact is, her economy won't save her. Her wealth won't save her. And as a city that has been defined by self-love, so too are her merchants. Her merchants are out for number one. They're looking out for their self-interest. When the merchants in, 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 in number that, 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 that rival the stars flock to Nineveh, they did so to make a profit. There's nothing to keep them there when the money runs out. When the money runs out, they're gone. When times get tough or trouble is on the horizon, the merchants pack up and they go to greener pastures. That's just how it works. But of course, not before stripping Nineveh of all the money they can. Verse 16. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. The merchants, the economy will be gone. And we know that even seeing the volatility inherent in our own economic system, which is really, really stable... Compared to what's happening in Nineveh, compared to the ancient world, we have much stability, right? Yet a news story breaks and investors panic and start selling their shares and the next thing you know, the market drops. And you find out that that didn't actually happen and the news goes around and the markets change and you have more money in your account. But there's no checks and balances in Nineveh. There's no quantitative easing in Nineveh. There's no soft landings in Nineveh. It's a crash into destitution built upon a structure of unmitigated self-interest. See, the foundation of Nineveh is already cracked and it is ready to crumble. And in all the cities of this world, there is no ultimate economic security. You can't trust in riches. You just can't. That's why Jesus tells us not to lay up treasures for yourselves on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Also, for Nineveh, their heart is set on the passing treasures of this world that are to be carried away by merchants looking for better better prospects. And when trouble comes, the money will leave, and that will leave Nineveh bankrupt. Third, We see that like the merchants ready to fly away when trouble arises, so too are the princes and the scribes ready to fly away 
here the duplicity of man's civil order. Look at verse 17. Your princes are like grasshoppers, your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. That's something that you don't want in your government. You don't want when trouble comes, you can't find them. That's a bad thing. Those who were appointed and entrusted to govern and maintain order and to ensure protection, they turn out to be cowards who only really care to save their own skin. That's what kind of place Nineveh is. That's what kind of kingdom the Assyrian Empire really is. Their description, the description here of their departure is like that of people retreating from battle. The Assyrian Empire, which is spread throughout the known world with captains and princes throughout the land, whose civil order appears to be so well maintained. That too is a farce. For when things heat up, those captains driven by self-interest disappear when the enemy's on the horizon. They've gleaned all that they can glean from their positions of power and soon fly away without leaving a trace. The ones who should have been protecting and instructing and and keeping order allow the citizens of the kingdom to be ravaged and to be scattered. They don't even fight. In the final verses of Nahum here, uh, he turns his attention to address the king directly, who, who it seems uh, may not be aware of the self-interested and negligent leadership serving under him. Look at verse 18. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. The leadership of Assyria has become a haven for negligent shepherds. In the ancient Near East, the role of kings and princes and captains was also often described in terms of shepherding. They were, they were to protect the people. They weren't supposed to oppress the people. They weren't supposed to leave the people unguarded. They were supposed to maintain social cohesion, but it turns out that the kings appointed under shepherds have been sleeping on the job. They're not concerned about the people. They simply want the perks of the job. And when the perks are gone, these spineless shepherds will themselves be put to sleep by the enemy or they'll fly away without a trace. That leaves the people scattered. That leaves the people dispersed as they flee or dispersed as they are led off into captivity in chains. Here's the reality of the city of man as we see in the city of Nineveh. It is self-absorbed. It is self-loving. And it is self-destructive. Name's use of the image of locusts is so instructive. Just think, just think about what he's said. The enemy that will destroy Nineveh, they're like locusts. 
All the efforts to fortify and multiply yourselves. Well, it's just like locusts. The merchants, guess what? They're like locusts feeding off of you. The civil leadership, they're like locusts too, devouring you. So Nineveh is here turning in on itself, destroying itself from the inside, even as it is destroyed from the outside. What a a vivid picture of sin and its tragic consequences. And it is the king who bears the brunt of the responsibility of leading the kingdom in the path of destruction. Following the prince of the power of the air, proving that the kingdom of Assyria is simply a manifestation of the kingdom of darkness. Kings of the earth leave their people scattered and broken. We see it time and time again throughout the history of this world. Now contrast that for a moment with the kingdom of Christ that is not of this world. Where King Jesus doesn't leave his people scattered but rather was moved to compassion upon the people of Israel in Matthew 9.36 as he saw that they were harassed and helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And so Jesus came into this world to gather the lost sheep of Israel. Rather than saving his skin, he laid down his life for his sheep to bring together people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. People who lived in darkness, yet by his mercy and grace were brought and bought to be part of the kingdom of his marvelous light. And and then, of course, the kingdom of Christ then, in turn, starts to resemble Christ, right? So that the works of his unshakable kingdom are self-abasing works of love. So that the economy of Jesus' kingdom is blessing freely given out of his gracious love, as Isaiah describes. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. That doesn't work in the world's economy. The transaction has to take place. There has to be goods and and there has to be money or something traded. But in the kingdom of Christ, everything is freely given by God who supplies every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So that even the leadership of his kingdom is that of servants who, like their Lord, are to, to pour themselves out to serve the flock of God. That's what they're called to do. So that the city of Christ is not characterized by selfishness and self-love and self-destruction ending in God's judgment. But is, is characterized by selfless love for God and neighbor. That's the kingdom of King Jesus. That's the city of God as opposed to the city of man represented in Nineveh. And that city 
of God, that kingdom of Christ, that is the the promised hope held out for the people of Judah. That's what they're, they're looking forward to. As they see the destruction of Nineveh, where will a kingdom that cannot be shaken come from? Where is a king who will lead his people in righteousness? And the destruction of Nineveh really just for signifies the destruction of evil itself in the redemption that is wrought by Jesus. Which then leads us to verse 19 to see the happy end of evil. See, Nahum ends on a happy note. It's happy. It's good. Continuing to speak to the king of Assyria, Nahum says, There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Nahum declares good news for Judah. Assyria's wound, it is fatal. They're dying. The tyrannical rule of this enemy of God and his people has come to an end. Justice is served. The enemy that has brought such devastation is in God's time receiving the due penalty of his error. It is good news when the Lord will no more endure tyrants. That is good news. Like it was good news on May 8th, 1945, when President Truman announced to the nation, this is a solemn but a glorious hour. The forces of Germany have surrendered to the United Nations. The flags of freedom fly over all Europe. For this victory, we join in offering our thanks to the providence which has guided and sustained us through the dark days of adversity. Surely the end of Nazi Germany with all its horrors was a day of rejoicing. It was a good day. The president announced good news to the world and to the nation. Such was the day of Nineveh's demise. It was good news when Nineveh was gone. Such will be the day when all evil is finally trampled and destroyed. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. This good news brings great rejoicing. For the entire world had felt the unceasing evil of Assyria. They had seen, they had heard of her atrocities. And they bore the sorrow and grief that accompanied her sins. Notice that Nahum says the evil was unceasing. That means, of course, that the Lord in the intervening time, what was he doing? He knew about it. Yet he was long-suffering. and He was patient. He had given Nineveh time to turn from their sin. He even sent Jonah that an entire generation would turn and repent. For Judah, no doubt, that justice seemed slow. For Judah, no doubt, 
They thought that God was being too lenient on Assyria. Yet we have an assurance here that Judah got. Reckoning will come. The evil will end. Every person in this world is first-hand witness to and participant in the misery of sin. And we have this assurance based upon the work of God himself. For on the cross, the Lord Jesus dealt the death blow to the devil and those who stand with him. The wound is fatal, brothers and sisters. The wound is fatal. The final collapse is sure. And his kingdom is indeed collapsing. We live in a time very much like Judah was living in, awaiting that final collapse, yet assured that the end of evil and all its accompanying miseries is coming. See, Christ has made an end to the miseries. Christ has made an end to the sorrows. Right? That, that end to the sorrows is on the horizon. Our sin that so easily entangles us, the end is on the horizon. Our diseases that afflict us, the death that surrounds us, the brokenness that weighs us down day after day. Yet with that assurance, we have something. It's something that we offer to the world too, right? We have joy unspeakable and full of glory. That is why we may be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That is why the apostle can call us to rejoice always and again to rejoice. Nam reminds us here that evil will not be missed. Evil will not be missed. Death will not be mourned. So now we rejoice. Now we sing songs of praise to our king as he has indeed inaugurated the final collapse. It is coming. It is collapsing. Evil is done with. For you who find refuge in his mercy, you have everlasting joy and peace before you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that through Christ you have conquered sin and death. And that all the brokenness, all the sin and the misery around us are coming to an end. Lord, the guilt that we had is gone. Christ took the punishment for us. The corruption that still is within our bones, it's coming to an end. And Lord, you will destroy the works of evil and you will lead us into your glorious kingdom where we will indeed say hallelujah, praise the Lord, and we will worship you in perfect peace. Lord, we thank you for that promise. And thank you, Lord, that we even see that promise through your prophet Nahum. 
Lord, bless these things to us by your Spirit. Amen.